0: Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. It's time again for an update on the latest in labor and employment law developments. To remind you, updates are all based on recent cases that have been decided new laws that have been passed, and general news from the world of labor and employment law. So let's jump right in. The first story I want to consider comes from Pennsylvania, Siple versus Cracker Barrel Old Country Store. You have to love Cracker Barrel. When you marry fine dining and shopping, you've got a recipe for success. At any rate, this case involves a claim of age discrimination by a 50-year-old former management track employee. The employee was demoted for alleged performance problems and later resigned. Cracker Barrel claimed it had legitimate non-discriminatory reasons for its actions. Number one, the employee's performance as associate general manager, and number two, his poor performance at SAM leadership weeks, which was some kind of five-day training that included testing. However, Cracker Barrel never indicated that his demotion was related to his performance at the leadership weeks only that the location the employee managed, quote, went backwards, end quote, under his leadership. The problem was that the record did not support this contention. The evidence was that the store increased in traffic, restaurant and retail sales, and its profits. It had the best food cost numbers of the 70-plus stores in its region and was named a winning store in its region during the same week the employee was demoted. His location received the highest overall customer satisfaction rating in the district. As a result of these facts, the court did not dismiss the case, and it may see a jury if it's not settled. So what went wrong? I've talked about this kind of thing in my series on termination done right. Employers must make a case for termination in the current legal environment, and the justification must withstand scrutiny. In this case, it didn't, and it hurt the employer. We don't have enough information to tease out exactly what went wrong, but I've encountered this kind of scenario before. It could be that the manager who made the decision made assumptions without checking them out. It happens. Alternatively, it may be that the employee was having performance issues, just not with regard to the metrics that were mentioned. If so, the documentation should have been specific enough to make that clear. This case is a reminder that in litigation, every detail of a termination will be subject to scrutiny, so prepare accordingly. Next, let's look at a retaliation case out of Massachusetts, Scalia v. F.W. Webb Company. In this case, the Secretary of Labor brought a lawsuit against the employer, and the court refused to dismiss the case. It arose from a DOL investigation into whether sales employees were entitled to overtime. During the investigation, the Department of Labor investigators sought to interview various sales employees. On three separate occasions, the employer sent emails out to groups of employees who they knew or had reason to believe had been or would be contacted by the investigators. The emails asked employees to let the employer know if they were contacted. The secretary of the Department of Labor alleged that the three emails dissuaded employees from speaking freely to the DOL investigators and that employees could have and or did reasonably believe, based on the emails, that they could suffer negative consequences if they participated in the DOL investigation. The court agreed and declined to dismiss the case. What's the takeaway here? Simply this. If you are under investigation by a government agency, do not meddle in any way with the participation of non-management employees, and that includes asking anything about their participation. You have a lot of leeway with managers in these scenarios, but stay away from non-managers or may, you may be accused of retaliation. And that's true even if you ask fairly innocuous questions like the ones in this case. There is simply not enough upside to gathering that kind of information. Most employees wouldn't tell you if they were cooperating, so why bother asking? Also, this is an issue with almost any government agency because the laws that the agencies enforce all protect employees against retaliation. So it doesn't matter if it's the EEOC, OSHA, the Department of Labor, or any of the others. If they are investigating and need to speak to non-management employees, the best approach is to stay away from it. You also want to make sure that this message makes its way to frontline managers as well as upper-level management. Speaking of the Department of Labor... On April 26th, the Wage and Hour Division announced that it has launched the Essential Workers, Essential Protections Initiative to help make sure that workers know about the wage and hour laws that protect them and how to contact the department should they need help. The Wage and Hour Division also published a blog article to underscore the initiative. Frequently asked questions are among the resources provided and address pandemic-related scenarios that workers and employers may face. Some of the highlights include the following. Question. My employer requires all employees to take their temperature to try to screen for people who might have COVID before entering the job site. Do I need to be paid for the time spent taking my temperature? And according to the Department of Labor, this is the answer. It depends. Under the FLSA, your employer is required to pay you for all hours that you work including for time before you begin your normal working hours if the task that you are required to perform is necessary for the work you do. For many employees, undergoing a temperature check before they begin work must be paid because it is necessary for their jobs. For example, if a nurse who performs direct patient care services at a hospital is required to check her temperature upon arrival at the hospital before her shift, The time that she spends checking her temperature upon entry to the worksite is likely compensable because such a task is necessary for her to safely and effectively perform her job during the pandemic. In other words, the temperature check is integral and indispensable to the nurse's job. Another question that is included in the uh, frequently asked questions is the following question. My employer is requiring me to undergo COVID-19 testing on my day off before I can return to the job site. Do I need to be paid for the time spent undergoing the testing? And again, here's the Department of Labor's answer. It depends. Under the FLSA, your employer is required to pay you for all hours that you work, including for time on your vacation day, if the task you are required to perform is necessary for the work you are paid to do. For many employees, undergoing COVID-19 testing may be compensable because the testing is necessary for them to perform their job safely and effectively during the pandemic. For example, if a grocery store cashier who has significant interaction with the general public is required by her employer to undergo a COVID-19 test on her day off, such time is likely compensable because it is integral and indispensable to her work during the pandemic. And let's look at one more, although there are several. Uh, Question. How are hours worked calculated for employees who work from home or no longer work at an employer's work site? And again, the DOL answer. Under the FLSA, your employer is required to pay you for all work performed, whether at the employer's work site or at your home. Therefore, you must be paid for all hours of telework actually performed, including overtime work in accordance with the FLSA. Your employer must pay you for all reported and unreported hours of telework they know or have reason to believe have been performed. This is true even for hours of telework that your employer did not authorize. It is an employer's obligation to exercise control to prevent unwanted work from being performed. In most cases, your employer may satisfy their obligation to pay their teleworking employees by providing reasonable time reporting procedures and paying employees for all reported hours. Again, there are several additional questions and answers, and I've included a link to this in the show notes. Moving on, let's look at an Illinois age discrimination case next. This is Huber v. Fox Valley Park District. In this case, a 52-year-old employee claimed she was forced to resign after she was placed on a performance improvement plan, and her performance was referred to as stale and stagnant, and similar comments were made to her in the workplace. Ultimately, the court denied the employer's motion to dismiss the case. This is another classic scenario, and the key problem appears to be the language used to describe the employee's performance, specifically stale and stagnant. There are certain buzzwords in the employment law world that imply discrimination. Among those in the age discrimination area are any terms that could be a proxy for or a reference to age. Obviously, stale and stagnant qualify, but I've seen a lot of others, including, for example, references to energy or being low energy, referring to the need for new ideas or new blood, References to culture fit and references to specific numbers of years of experience sought for a particular position. There are others, but each of those ones I just listed are ones that I can think of off the top of my head that I've dealt with in practice. The real problem for the employer here is using generalizations and spin in the performance documents rather than specific facts and issues. Rather than saying someone is stale or stagnant, the performance issue that leads to that assessment needs to be the focus. So, for instance, if an employee's problem is lack of business growth, that might be characterized by some as stagnation, but that is not clear and carries with it an implication of ageism. It is far better to note something specific and factual. Perhaps employee A's department has shown no growth in a list of specific metrics over the past six quarters. And if you want a gold star, attach the supporting documentation showing the numbers that back up the statement. Also, leave out the characterization words like stale or stagnant. The facts speak for themselves. Finally, let's take a look at a Tenth Circuit case out of Colorado. In Ibrahim v. Alliance for Sustainable Energy LLC, a former manager sued his employer for disparate treatment arising from, among other things, race. The former manager was Muslim and had been terminated for making inappropriate comments to two female employees. The employee had texted an administrative assistant and offered to help her pay for her rental car, and a few weeks later invited her to a movie. She turned down both offers and then told her supervisor. On another occasion, the employee told a female employee that he had gotten a positive vibe from her and asked how she dealt with men who did not take her seriously as an attractive young female. The employee was placed on administrative leave and ultimately terminated for his lack of professionalism and judgment. He filed a lawsuit and ultimately prevailed on his race discrimination claim. The reason was the treatment of a white manager who had engaged in similar conduct. The white manager had yelled and cursed at a female subordinate engaged in sexual text messages with subordinates, asked a subordinate to run a personal errand during work hours, and showed favoritism in hiring. That manager was placed on administrative leave, required to take management and leadership classes, and then allowed to return to work. The disparate treatment was the basis for the decision in favor of the employee. This one is fairly straightforward. Employers need to keep in mind that their decisions regarding how to deal with workplace issues set standards and need to be consistent. If they are not, you risk a discrimination claim based on disparate treatment, and that simply means treating people differently under the same or similar circumstances. There are several clever legal arguments to be made in these cases about whether or not the situations were similar, and every situation is different to some degree, making these cases inherently difficult for employers to navigate. However, when considering termination of employment for a disciplinary issue, part of the analysis should always be how past cases have been handled. Employers should strive for consistency as much as possible to avoid these types of claims. That's all the news. Until next time. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up to date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.